listening to the Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system away. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Welcome, listeners, to our second episode on the role of Big Pharma and the COVID crisis, following on from episode 585 uh, with Stephen Duckett from the Grattan Institute, where we just started to get into the meaty topics. And today I've invited to hear Amin, who's the co-executive director of the Initiative for Medicines, Access and Knowledge IMAC, they're called. So, Tahir, welcome to the show. Can you give us a bit of background to your organization's work? Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, my organization is working on uh, reforming the patent system, but also to bring health equity into the whole R&D and medical system as it exists, particularly uh, in the United States, but also globally. We've worked uh, both in the global south and in the um, uh, uh, in the US and Europe, in addressing some of the monopoly practices that exist, but also changing uh, how investment and R and D happens in the pharmaceutical space, such that we are getting uh, um, revenue and investment in areas which are often neglected, and often because of uh, then there are no markets for them, and COVID is a great example of that. It certainly is. And for me, you know, I was surprised to find out that it was way back in May of 2007 that uh, a patent uh, called Coronavirus Isolated from Humans was awarded. And this highlighted the causative agent of severe acute respiratory syndrome, which is SARS. SARS is known as SARS-CoV, whilst the virus that causes COVID-19 is SARS-CoV-2. So we've known this is coming down the pipeline for quite a while. How do neglected diseases like this sit in the information ecosystem of pharmaceutical research? I, I mean, I don't know if something like uh, SARS gets classified as neglected. I think these are more like pandemic flu-like viruses, at least by the classification that something an organization like the World Health Organization would give it. But what's interesting is in back in 2015, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit later than the 2007 timeline you're mentioning, but in 2015, there was a uh, blueprint or a task force that the World Health Organization had set up to basically uh, say how we're going to address pandemic-like situations, given the fact that we've had, you know, the uh, H5N1s, the H1N1s, the uh, swine flu, uh, SARS and MERS over the last 15 years. And uh, yet, uh, if you look at investment in these areas, and this is what the World Health Organization was highlighting from this uh, task force, um, that there hasn't really been anything forthcoming in the change of behavior in terms of how we're going to invest in these potential pandemic situations, despite the history we've had in the last 15 years of this these kind of flu viruses and pandemic type situations appearing more regularly. Yeah, it's a big one, isn't it? How do these huge pharmaceutical companies, I mean, one of your articles uh, talks about their revenues uh, bumping $660 billion uh, recently, uh, but the amount of money they're investing 
doesn't have a proactive, uh, forward-looking nature. It's all about the next 18 months and whether the R&D can justify, uh, can be justified uh, around a disease that may or may not be available. So how does that interplay between uh, university-funded public research and the big pharma industry play out? That's a great question. And I think uh, what COVID-19 is really showing is that a lot of the, uh, the, the the research is being funded by public dollars. Now, whether that actually includes universities, some of which has been uh, already done by some universities. For example, if you look at remdesivir, which was the first antiviral treatment that came out in relation to COVID and was approved, whether it's effective or not is another debate. Um there were universities that had received grants. I think uh, I think one university had up to at least forty million from the National Institutes of Health in the United States to do research on SARS and MERS using that compound. And so this was back in two thousand sixteen. And then since then, since COVID has broken out, we've seen over eleven, twelve billion dollars given to pharmaceutical companies in the United States, and countless other uh, billions of dollars by the European governments to. Uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies there. And so what's happening is we're seeing a lot of public funding going into this, but we've got no certainty in terms of how the access side of it is going to play out. Uh, is it that the, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are going to be able to then distribute and decide how access is going to happen, at what price? There's no real uh, social contract where basically the money that's coming from public payers is then going to be uh, um, sort of it's going to allow them to get access more readily and at a fair price. None of that's been negotiated. It's just like get the science done and then we'll figure out the access issues later, which is really how it shouldn't be done. Yeah, it's kind of another version of disaster capitalism, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. We, we, we won't plan for the future, but when when it does, when the shit does hit the fan, then uh, we'll put our hands out. It seemed like, uh, yeah, it was early February uh, that swamp that Donald Trump has talked about started to turn into uh, overflowing lake of lobbyists looking for uh, a public money to 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 do the sort of work they should have already been doing. Uh, what were your alarm bells saying when when you uh, read about some of those developments? Well, it didn't. It doesn't surprise me. Um, I think, particularly here in the United States, the the lobbying power of pharma is is it, it's it's world renowned. I mean, I think uh, I think there are some studies out there that show they probably have more lobbyists on Capitol Hill than even the um, the energy companies, uh, the oil companies. And uh, having spent a fair amount of time on in DC and the stories I've heard. It's it's no surprise that uh, there's there's real there's no real backbone there to take on the farm industry and I think and, and I'm focusing on the U.S. here but and I think this applies everywhere is uh, the, the pharmaceutical industry in the United States over the last four years has really had its feet held to the fire because of the drug pricing crisis in the U.S. but also elsewhere but particularly in the U.S. has been a lot of focus on them and all of a sudden COVID was like a, a kind of jet, get out of jail card for them. Because then all of a sudden, the, the everyone's kind of worried and panicking, and rightly so. But they're looking to the pharma companies now to get us out of this this, uh, this mess. But without paying attention to all the money that we're investing as public payers, and then the pharmaceutical companies are now their, their market capitalization rates have gone up in some in some cases, like Moderna, who've got a potential vaccine coming out. 
and CEOs are getting extremely rich in terms of these uh, the shares going up, and yet you know the government is is funding all this stuff, and we've got no sense of how this is all going to be made uh, available both uh, uh, in the U.S. but globally too. Because this is not this is the, the biggest problem is is there's a lot of nationalism going on around this, and uh, that's not going to make any of us safe, no matter where you are in the world. That move by uh, Trump back in, uh, I think, March it was, to offer a uh, billion dollars to the German pharmaceutical company CureVac uh, to secure uh, their COVID-19 vaccine only for the United States uh, was a great prompter in a way for the open science movement. And uh, there'd already been calls by uh, UNESCO, uh, I think uh, the OECD had been out there talking about the need for open science. So, um, yeah, uh, how do you see this evolving um, call for uh, open science as um, a better process forward for having this sort of foresight required in, in this sort of uh, challenging future where we're moving into? I think it's uh, definitely what COVID has made uh, a lot of people in the public health space and whether it be the pharma R&D realize is that we do need alternative models. Now, open science has many variations within it as a term. Um, is you know you've got the open source sort of aspect of it as, as you take it you know in terms of the like the same way that software has open source where the knowledge is just totally in the commons and it's public. Or you have uh, where things are sort of outsourced or crowdsourced or uh, by the pharmaceutical companies. So it really depends what version we're looking at. I think we need it as open as possible. And a good example of this that plays out and, and something I uh, we write about in, our, in the article I, I referenced that I co-authored in, in Stat is if you look at remdesivir, it, it's kind of still currently being given as a uh, intravenously. And so you have to go into hospital. What's interesting is is that had that compound been made more widely available in an open sort of science way, you could have had other researchers thinking about it in an inhaler form or in a more kind of uh, 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 a form that could be taken orally or some other way. And now all that work is only happening now. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, and this week we're in discussion with Tahir Amin, the co-executive director of the Initiative for Medicines, Access and Knowledge. So, Tahir, um, this open science framework is uh, a big one. We've talked uh, quite a bit about it on the show, but there's various layers uh, through the, the pharmaceutical pipeline uh, from research onwards, uh, where do you see um, the most traction uh, in the opening up of science and, and work your way through the production line if you can to discuss uh, the best practices required? Let's just start with just the public funding aspect. You know, For example, an institute like the National Institute of Health, I think they, by, by all accounts, they spend somewhat $40 billion on public research into diseases and, and health issues and, and New, new science. But what I think we're lacking is it's, and, and this is, shouldn't be just solely the United States, other, other, other countries that have uh, at least the, the, uh, the wealth to do so should be investing in public institutions, not just to do the basic science, which is, you know, the initial sort of findings. We should be thinking of institutions now where particularly in this pandemic type situation, and God knows what's going to happen when climate change uh, is already here. But when we see more of these kind of events, 
that we need institutions which are taking not just the basic science, but they're actually doing it right through the discovery process, right through to end formulation or end end product. And I think what, what the current systems we have, you know, we've talked about one of the aspects of open science is public-private partnerships, which is a kind of hybrid form. And it it works to a degree, but it actually all all the all the 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 end product ends up in the hands of the private. So it's kind of like public risk, and then private gain. And I think one of the aspects that we could do is is build institutions which are actually doing, particularly for these kind of pandemic type situations, doing the basic research and getting products as far down the line as possible in preparation for these kind of outbreaks. And I think that, to me, is is something that the the United States used to do in the forties. Uh, basically, you know, during the World War, they would actually basically do public good type science and research. And I think there's a lot written about this. And even the whole vaccine uh, business was built around that. It was like the government would just basically say, "We're going to do this from beginning to end." And I think at least we need that to counter some of these new and emerging uh, pathogens that we're going to be facing as we go forward now. I think that, to me, is the, is is a starting point. But the the pharma industry and the, and the way the lobbyist works and the way the policy works, and this includes politicians too, it it's it's pretty much driven towards oh, only the private and the market can solve these problems. And I think we, this has shown it's not the case. It certainly has. And for me, um, as a researcher, one of the most frustrating things is uh, the peer-reviewed um, process of uh, evaluating scientific papers. And finally, after 18 months, uh, the peer-reviewed gets uh, the tick of approval and then goes behind a giant paywall. And uh, yeah, it was uh, very interesting reading a, a George Monbiot article recently on uh these sort of uh, private monopolies uh, that have been set up and supposedly have uh, all of this uh, uh, sort of academic kudos and whatnot, and not all of them, but there was one or two uh, shady characters who, who are making an absolute fortune out of this. And, uh, yeah, for me, that is a big one. Um, the beauty of open science is that we can have researchers coming with different perspectives on the same problem, and if they are able to read the latest research papers and, and add their their findings to that um we you know the, the entire global research community can be working around the clock on these issues and and firing uh all sorts of new angles forward so uh yeah for me that's a big one and it's great to see more and more researchers and uh major organizations showing interest in uh, those sort of productivity gains that can result i would if i may add carl um you mentioned universities and, and it, it really just shows since the 80s and this is something that the united states really pushed forward with what's called the buy dole act where uh, you know, universities get funding, and then they eventually they be, they spin out all these companies. And I think what we really also need to look at, we need to relook at the the whole scientific community because you know we we hear about all these these uh, tech startups and these billionaires in the tech world. There are a lot of scientists who become very very rich, and the system is designed now almost like if I can spin out of a university, a small company, sell off my compound or whatever research I've done using public funding. It's, that's the incentive model we have now. It's not science for science' sake anymore. It's it's almost as if how much can I make out of this? I'm not to try, I'm not trying to say that scientists shouldn't make money, but what I'm saying is is that basically the incentive system is really skewed that way. 
Mm, and with universities becoming such uh, massive uh, financial organisations, owning uh, swathes of real estate, a uh, huge international student market, uh, they really are powerful entities. Uh, but how could um, the role of uh, some of these pharmacy vaccines help to fund some of these universities so that we don't have uh, $100,000 uh, law fees uh, per year and so forth. Yeah, and I, th I think I think we need to change the incentives as well. It shouldn't be all about getting patents for every little bit of research you do. It should be just published and made openly available. And I think 20, 30 years ago, uh, before all this started, scientific researchers, they, they weren't incentivized to file patents. They, they just wanted to publish. It was a publication model. Now it's a patent model. Like patent everything, <laughs> and so everything becomes proprietized. And and what you're doing is you're kind of kind of gridlocking research in that way, uh, instead of keeping it open. So I, I think we really have to look at our incentive models across a number of uh, disciplines. You know whether that be the economic system itself, the scientific industry, the legal industry. Um, there's there's a lot that has has decayed, and and why we have such a concentration of power and and uh, outcomes. That's a really important point. Uh, patent thickets uh, drive me mad. What drove that transition from publications towards patenting? How did that come about to here? I mean, I think uh, I think what we've seen is is we've seen of, of over the last sort of 50, 60 years that intellectual property has become this 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 currency. And now you know the currency, particularly in tech, is data. I think for pharmaceutical companies, it's been patents. The more patents they can get, the more they can control the marketplace. And, and laws uh, in the United States, which have kind of then spread globally, uh, the, the TRIPS agreement, which is the World Trade Organization agreement that governs intellectual property and that made everything global, the standards global, have largely basically, we've seen like patenting rates in the pharmaceutical sector double. I mean, just think about it in the United States. I think it took some, uh, from about 18... 60 something it took about sort of uh, nearly until about 1990 for there to be 5 million patents and then between 1990 until now we've seen another 5 million patents added i mean have we become more inventive in that last 30 years or has it that our laws have become so much weaker and because of lobbying and because of the way the patent system has totally been diluted that anything can now be inventive i mean the word innovation gets thrown around so loosely that it's 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 just virtually impossible to get a pattern rejected. So, I think uh, this is why we see more thickets. And the pharma industry is very clever, and it's got business practices. It's got life cycle management strategies. Kind of this this they have a product and they keep it alive for as long as possible using the pattern system. And um, and and this is these again back to the incentives. Yeah, there's a, a peer-reviewed paper called Big Pharma, Little Science, a bibliometric <laughs> perspective on Big Pharma's R&D decline. And, and they say uh, a stagnant or declining number of new chemical entities are approved by regulators such as the US Food and Drug Administration each year in spite of sustained major increases of R&D expenditures. Now, uh, you know, I... I'm aware through your work and, and others that there is, um, you know, a focus on R&D surrounding, you know, existing technologies and how to uh, ring fence aspirin, for example, so that no one else can actually, few competitors can, can compete in that space. But uh, I was surprised that these guys are saying there was an increase of R&D expenditures. I thought R&D expenditures were actually falling within uh, the big pharma movement. 
That's a, that's a good story. I haven't I haven't read that paper, but when, from the work that we've done, I think when you compare R and D to um, other budget heads, particularly marketing, R and D is a lot less. So you know, we need to make that comparison because the argument that pharma always uses when you hear testimonies given in Congress or elsewhere in, uh, is is always, oh, we we invest so much in in new medicines, and that's why we need you know patents and everything else, every other kind of incentive. And I think. Um, the 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 idea of I think we, that's the that's the other area is the financialization of the industry. What what does investment mean? Does it mean that basically I'm acting as a uh, venture capitalist now, where I just buy a small company up, and that's investment? I think this is what the, a lot of the big farmer has become. They don't really invent anything; they just go out and acquire. Um, and and so the question of investment and what R and D is is really again, needs to be uh, uh, really passed out to, to give it a better definition. I, I think terms like innovation and investment, which pharma always throws around in order to justify the, the current business model, I think we really need to start picking that apart. And, and some people have done some great work, particularly on the financialization in the industry. But I think we really need to understand, well, what, is it, what, does, it, what does that mean in terms of what is innovation? Because the moment we use that term and we we, we, we put the words investment in relation to it, people stop asking a lot of questions. And I think we need to ask more questions because they're just two buzzwords that we just use. And I think language is really important because it creates this perception, oh, they're doing something good. Use those two words, oh, it means, yeah, that you know we can't touch that stuff. And I think really they've got away with it for so long and we're in this catastrophe as a result of it. I've heard stories that uh, some marketing is actually incorporated uh, as an R&D expenditure. So uh, it is difficult to to decipher what's going on. So I'm pleased we have uh, organisations like yours uh, keeping an eye on things. So, um, you know, one of the other frustrating things is whilst there is a big upfront cost in, in the R&D, we're led to believe it's a massive upfront cost, uh, the windfalls that come from it are are often remarkable and in the most recent federal uh, budget here in Australia there was uh, uh, the finance uh, the treasurer talking uh, uh, without missing a beat on uh, admitting a new uh, uh, ovarian drug cancer treatment that uh, would cost $140,000 per treatment. Now the markups uh, on the cost of actually producing those drugs is probably, you know, in many cases in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, the returns are, are not five or ten percent returns that you would usually get in small business, but in the thousands of percent, you know, anywhere between one thousand to fifteen thousand uh, percent markup per unit. So. Yeah, what, what sort of uh, analysis, what, what sort of stories do you know on that, that sort of front? Oh, there, there are so many. I mean, the, the, the pharmaceutical industry is one of the most profitable, if not the most profitable. Um, I mean, if you look at a drug like Humira, I, I don't know how much it costs in, in Australia, uh, but certainly in the United States where it's not subject to any competition at the moment. So this is an AbbVie drug, uh, Biologic. Uh, used to treat uh, rheumatoid arthritis and, and various other inflammations. Uh, this drug brings in, I think it's a high-selling uh, drug, drug in, uh, most profitable drug in the world, and in the US particularly, they they raking some like twenty billion a year, um, and it's I think it's over the years has already uh, surpassed a hundred, uh, you know, uh, 
I think it's even 100 billion. Um, I may be wrong on that, but it's, 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 it's an, an astronomical amount. And given the fact they never even invented the drug, they, they bought it from a German company, Knoll, BASF, back in the early 90s. And they didn't even do the initial trials on the drug. And then eventually they brought it to market. And, uh, and they've used a thicket of patents. Uh, I think on our last count in the United States alone, they had filed some 250 uh, patent applications, of which at least 130 have been granted. And they've used this to uh, systematically uh, fend off competition and get into settlements with companies. And I think that you asked the right question, at what point is enough? And, and how long should we be allowing these companies to prolong their exclusivities that keep competition off the market? That's not to say we don't need to. We, you know, they shouldn't have these incentives, but I mean, twenty billion a year, <laughs> and is, how much of that is going back into R and D? Uh, there's a lot of shareholders uh, and, and, and buybacks that are going on, uh, but certainly it's not going into R and D. So this justification that they need to mark up these prices in, in, in order to put it back into R and D, it doesn't add up. Well, especially when you look at the figures. But I think that's where we need a lot of transparency. It's a black box. Gee, you you sound so uh, so measured in your responses. I feel like screaming hearing <laughs> some of these statistics. <laughs> but um, uh, so you know, looking back on your experience, uh, has the the pharmaceutical industry exposed society to undue risk uh, in regards to COVID nineteen? I think they have, yes. I think they have. For the, and I think I, I don't think it's just entirely the pharmaceutical industry. I think this is a, the important point. I think uh, there's a lot of conversations going out, and, and I'm sure you've read a lot of it. It's, it's like people saying, oh, the market will solve the problems, or some people say, well, the market's failed us, and we need a new kind of capitalism, whatever, whatever. But who decides these frameworks? I think that's the question we need to ask. It's our governments. They create the policies. So the player... Which is the pharmaceutical industry? Sure, they, you know, they will they will do their lobbying or whatever. They they just do what's given to them. They will they will take whatever incentives are given to them. So it's up to us as the public and our elected representatives to stand up to this to to really look at what kind of system do we want. And I think for the last 40, 50 years, you know, this neoliberal capitalism has led us down this this dark place where not only are we really stuffed when it comes to issues like pandemic crises, but on a whole other economic level, you know, the disparities in wealth and everything else that's going on from an economic point of view and, you know, just even populism. I think, I think we, we have to ask, like, what kind of market are we looking at here across the board, not just even in pharma? And, and that for me is, is I, I don't necessarily say, well, yeah, pharmaceutical companies are going to do what they're going to do. They're going to try and rig the system or pressure it in the way that they want. But at the end of the day, if our governments are not setting up the right incentives, then who should we be looking at? Yeah, when you consider that these core patents are worth billions and billions of dollars, uh, there is a way to value those assets. And with my uh, renegade economist, uh, Georgist type economics um, outlook, I would say that government could develop a public-private sharing ratio where, for example, 5% of the value of that patent is paid back to the government each year. And that could be used to offset uh, company taxes, which are often largely avoided by um, the pharmaceutical industry. 
what sort of models are you seeing proposed as a way to to share um, this incredible wealth that is is based off uh, so much uh, public research? Well, I, I, I mean, uh, on, in terms of the public research, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier. I think a, a lot of the models is actually building some kind of public production capacity and not relying on the market and the industry to do that. Uh, now, of course, there are other uh, life-saving treatments that are going to be needed, which are in private hands. And I think, uh, I think, uh, from that perspective, we we really need to have a, a, a at least pricing structures and a limitation on the monopoly power. Uh, I think uh, companies get at least, when you think about the exclusivities, they they get both FDA exclusivities. I think it's anywhere between five to ten years, depending on which country you're in. I think ten years should be more than enough of exclusivity. This whole twenty-year patents, and then every every other patent that they lay on top of it, and including all the other FDA exclusivities, they get that run in parallel. I think we need to re- reduce the amount of exclusivity that companies get. Uh, I think the tax idea that you say is, is a very good one, uh, and particularly if there's a public funding aspect to it, I think that some of that value has to go back into the public sphere. So um, I, th- I think you need two things. I think for, for these kind of new emerging crises like you know like we have with COVID, um, I think we need a real public sector that is 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 really robust uh, and really looks after the public uh, as a public good. And then if you, where you have the private involved, which you're going to need. There's got to be some limitations and caps on their powers, uh, because the way it is at the moment is just it's just a runaway train. Well, Tahir Amin, uh, thank you so much for joining us here uh, from the Initiative for Medicines Access and Knowledge. Um, what's your web address again, Tahir? It's uh, www.i-mak.org. of The Renegade Economist. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Check out the show notes at prosper.org.au. Find me on Twitter at Earthsharing. Occasionally on Facebook uh, under the Prosper Australia banner. Yes, stay safe out there as we search for rational solutions to seemingly complex